scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jeb and Scout had an unsettling experience at First Purchase Baptist Church, the backstory to this church's name has a lesson in itself. In Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, the congregation of newly freed slaves bought lumber to build their own church before they bought lumber to build their own homes. And they named the church First Purchase as a statement of priority and thanksgiving putting God first. I was blessed to have grown up in a house like that. Early in their marriage, mom and dad heard a powerful stewardship sermon based on Malachi 3.8. Would you rob from God? I'm not going to preach that kind of sermon today. Don't worry. But it restructured not only their giving, but their ways of budgeting and their way of paying bills. You see, Conoco paid their employees every other Friday and Dad would immediately deposit his check on his way home from work. The next morning, after Saturday breakfast, Dad would sit at his desk and start writing checks. But the very first check was always to the church, and it was always 10% of his income. And he would write it out, and he'd put it in one of those church envelopes, and then he would set it up on his desk before he began paying the bills. But as he paid the mortgage and the utilities and all that, he would sometimes stop and look at the envelope. And as a child, I thought he was praying. Maybe he was. He may have been praying, Lord, make it stretch. But I have a feeling it was more of a prayer of thanksgiving because it seemed like a very sacred moment. And then afterwards, he would call in my brothers to receive their weekly allowances. Finally, they were my older brothers. Finally, at the end of my first grade, when Dad realized I could count money, he called me in for my first allowance. It was 15 cents. A nickel for God, a nickel for savings, and a nickel to spend. The next year, at the end of second grade, I got a raise. It was 10 cents. I got 30 cents. It was a dime for God, in that order, then a dime for savings, and then a dime to spend. Now, a dime went farther way back then. So I was happy. Everything was cool. 
But about six months later in third grade, in math class, we started learning about percentages. And it was at the same time that our pastor was gearing up his stewardship sermons. And I sat in church as he preached about tithing. And I started doing my math. That afternoon, I approached Dad about it. Now, I was a real quiet, shy kid back then. But I approached him, and I said, it might not be fair, because I'm paying 33%. And Dad says, that's right. That's how much my, your current allowance is. And I said, yes, but everyone else is paying just 10%. He said, Dad asked, well, should we take seven cents back from God? And I said, no, that wouldn't be fair to God. And we continued talking. And in the end, my new allowance was $2.50, and God got a quarter. We all got raises. (laughs) And Dad went away smiling, knowing his daughter knew her math, knew the value of a dollar, knew how to negotiate, and accepted the importance of tithing. I enjoyed tithing. Thinking about how my dad would start off his Saturday mornings after being paid. I enjoyed tithing, realizing that 90% is pretty good. And that other 10% is God's, not mine. I enjoyed tithing right up until the mid-80s when an economic slump hit Houston. I'm sure some of y'all remember it. And I was working in a non-essential job at a hospital, making a good wage, and then suddenly nothing. And it hurt to go to church. And I kept it up for as long as I could, putting at least $5 in the plate. But it hurt not to be able to give to God as I wanted to. So I prayed about it, talked to the pastor about it. He says, well, there's more ways to give to God. And God will give you what you need. And God did. But I learned that there, if you count up all the days in a week, and all the hours in a day, that you end up with 2.5 hours each day to give to God. Because see, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your heart, all your soul, and all your... I got it mixed up, of course. But there's more to a person than just the financial blessings that God gives them. God gives us time, God gives us talents. God gives us energy. One of my favorite examples of that was a woman in one of my churches that her husband had always been the breadwinner. And she would hear year after year these sermons about giving 10%, and they did from their household. But she says, my husband's earning that. What am I doing? She loved to garden. And so one time, long before I met her, she set aside 10% of her garden 
to be able to raise flowers and greenery to provide to the church for morning services and weddings and funerals. There was always a beautiful bouquet that she gave from her 10% of her time and her strength. I'll always remember that. There's always one way to give or another. And I am grateful. Sometimes I have it in money. Sometimes I have it in time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. When Tyler asked Rick and I to pick a day and pick the passages, he says, I would like for you to look at the Reformation led by Josiah and also include something about stewardship. We've done the stewardship part, okay? Now we get to focus in on the Reformation part, the part with Josiah. And I want to tell you something before we get started. So the children are listening and the neighbors are watching. Keep that in mind. You see, when <coughs> in our call to worship, we have what is an essential cap- capsulization of, of the faith of the Jews, and that is that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one, the Lord alone. And then it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. When the man asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This was it. Or when Jesus asked him back, what is this? And it was right on the tip of his tongue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why did he know with such confidence and such speed? It's because every morning he woke up and recited the Shema. That's what this passage is called. He recited it. And to keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. And recite them to your children. It means the, the Hebrew word is to impress them on your children. And impress them, the word is like the word used when they couldn't engrave images to decorate the temple, but they could impress them. And by impressing these words onto the children, they became holy vessels for God. And so this man, being a devout Jew, said that, in fact, probably the first words he heard when he was born were the words of the Shema. He was greeted into this world... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away. Bind them as a sign on your head. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. You've heard about the mezuzah right there on the doorpost. Touching base with God, coming and going. That's where the righteousness will be, is to know that the Lord your God is one. And him alone. Well, this had been forgotten when Josiah came around 
until they found that book of law. And then they pulled it out, and you know it made an impact on young Josiah. Remember, he was only eight years old when he was king, made king. And this, this reformation came about when he was in his 20s, early, late teens and early 20s. And that verse, the Shema, made an impact on him. We know that because as the writer of 2 Kings describes Josiah, every time he mentions him and his character, he recites that verse. And he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. When we get into the serious reformation afterwards that that Josiah led, we see that he included the elders and the young people, the great and the small, to hear the words. He was so excited about it. And he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, and made them perf- to perform the words of the covenant in the book and wanted all the people to join the covenant. And then he commanded the high priest to clean the temple. Now, they had had a brief reformation beforehand when they discovered the, the book of Deuteronomy or discovered the book of the law. But it wasn't a real, it was kind of a light housekeeping. It wasn't a real deep cleanse of the temple. Because somehow, when they went to clean the temple, the high priest and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple all the vessels made for Baal. Now, that was a different God. That was a God of thunder. That was a God of rain. That was a God of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped. But somehow they had missed those vessels when they were cleaning the temple. Well, Josiah went in and said, all right, we're going to be serious this time. And so they cleaned out all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah. Now, Asherah was his consort, Baal's consort, a female consort, who was also his sister. Anyway, and for all the hosts of heaven, because those that worshipped Baal worshipped the stars in the heavens too. And he said, we're going to clean these out. And so they cleaned those out. And he burned them all outside of Jerusalem in the fields and carried their ashes even further away. And then he disposed of the idolatrous priests who the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places. And he kept cleaning things out. The incense to Baal, the sun, the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of heavens, he cleaned out those offerings. And he brought out from the house of the Lord outside to Jerusalem and burned all of the the graven images. And he took down and broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord. And all of the hangings that the women that worshipped Asherah had. And he brought out the priests of the city of Judah and tore down the high places that were on the outsides where they burned incense on the high places to try to reach the stars. And on and on it goes, bringing out the vessels to the false gods. How did it get that way? How did There were courts going in to the temple of God. That were supposed to keep out riffraff and supposed to keep out the non-Jews and then keep out the women and keep out all but the priests. Yet somehow, 
those vessels honoring the idols, the false gods, had made it all the way into the temple. How in the world did that happen? What in the world was Josiah doing as he was cleaning? He kept cleaning and pushing things out and destroying them so they could not be brought back in. And he did it with all of his strength and all of his mind and all of his heart. He loved God and wanted no other distractions. Not for himself and not those around. You see, it had been going on so long. Just a little here, a little there. There's an old fable about a camel's nose. If you let it into the tent, you'll end up sleeping outside because the camel will move in. Little bit by little bit. They got used to it. They got you Now, when I talk about Baal, and he, we read on down that there was... He pulled out the high places, but that he defied Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. That was another one, both because of the rain that they believed that Baal provided, and it became a fertility god. And then it was even worse with those that worshipped Molech. And how do I discreetly describe this there are child sacrifices there were child sacrifices with Baal and you think of little ones but for Molech the children had to be old enough that they were physically able to participate in the fertility rites and then be killed as they were participating and then their bodies burned completely cremated. This had become normal. It was normalized. The, to have the vessels in the house of God, to have the tapestries that the women wove, to have the incense burning, not to God, but to Moloch and to Baal and to all the other gods that they found convenient. They got used to it. There are two ways that that evil becomes prominent. One is by enticement, making it more interesting and exciting. But that only lasts for a while. But when it becomes normalized, we don't stop and think about it being evil anymore. We don't stop and think about how it takes away from worshiping God and loving God with all that we have. That's what was going on. And Josiah said, enough. We've got to clean house all the way down. Burn it up so it can't be brought back in. And then get rid of the ashes. He even got rid of the bones of those that had been sacrificed. This is some serious house cleaning. And when Josiah died, the writer of 2 Kings said, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. 
That included David and Solomon. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his soul, with all his heart, with all his mind. That's the impression Josiah left on others. We think he was harsh. We think he was, he was maybe too thorough. I mean, what about all these neighbors? What were they thinking? And that's where we get to Jesus and that story. It came, interesting enough, the man approached Jesus after Jesus had cleansed the temple. And perhaps that's why the leader was asking Jesus, now what? And he and Jesus agreed, we love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and then, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the twist. We want to be polite to our neighbors. We don't want to offend our neighbors. But how do we love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength when our neighbor and our neighbor as ourself, when our neighbor disagrees with us, has beliefs completely opposite and beliefs that might lead us astray. Well, that's where we get back to loving God. First, by example, the impressions we leave on our neighbors by our love. Force isn't going to do it. Making people believe something they don't believe is not accomplished by force. It's accomplished, and it's not accomplished by acquiescence, saying, oh, well, you believe what you want to believe, and, and we'll go on with it. It's by combining a, a firm conviction in our beliefs with a gentle love for our neighbors. Because if we truly love our neighbors and love God, we want our neighbors to know God and love God too. And realize what God is doing for them. But we can't do it by pounding. We can't do it by pushing. We do it by hearing what their fears are that would cause them to believe the way they do. The Canaanites feared drought. And they feared angering a God that was in charge of rain. And so they did everything they could, including giving their children, hoping to appease this God. But if they realized that the true God can't be manipulated that way, and that God loves them anyway and will provide, Then they start paying attention. That's how the early Christians gained so much growth. It's the others recognized how much they loved each other and their neighbors. And that they had a conviction of such a firm belief they were willing to die for it. Love the sin and hate the sinner is a bumper sticker approach. But it's got a start. Because loving God with all of our heart and mind and strength 
And applying that towards loving our neighbor means it's going to take everything we've got to make a difference. All the love we have. A strength to know when to hold back and when to let go. A strength to decide. I think it's interesting that that Shema is posted on the door's post. And that it's spoken of at the gates. Because that's where the decisions were made in ancient times. It's when we make our decisions that we need to show the greatest love for God and for our neighbors. I don't know what challenges God is putting in front of you. But no, the children are watching and listening. And so are the neighbors. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please stand me as we with me as we sing.